So welcome everyone. Um, my name is Dr. Michael Corso. I have had the pleasure and privilege of being the thesis uh, coach, director, guide uh, to Jennifer Ewing's um, thesis at Signum this year. Uh, Jen and I share a couple of common interests. One is um, we've both been non-traditional students at Signum, and we know what it is to sort of uh, you know, take that work-life balance approach into, uh, into getting a master's degree at Signum. Uh, and it, you know, Signum's great at, for us uh, who want to keep studying and, and learning, uh, especially in this area of Tolkien studies. And the other uh, interest, and why I was happy to, to join her in this adventure, was um, a common interest in applying a religious lens um, to Tolkien's legendarium, to his work. Uh, you know, as you'll hear, hear Jen talk about, uh, Tolkien's faith was important to him, and it was inevitable. In some way, it shows up in his work. And so it was wonderful to work with her as she explored um, the way in which these couple of chapters uh, from the Book of Revelation uh, seem to show up in, in uh, The Lord of the Rings. So without further introduction, um, the title of Jen's thesis is The Promises to the Overcomer, The Gifts and Rewards Given to the Fellowship in the Lord of the Rings. The thesis will be available uh, at Signal University's website, as will this uh, recording of this webinar. So uh, without further remarks, Jen is going to talk for about uh, 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, I'll ask her some questions and then there'll probably be time for anyone else who's in, in, in uh, the webinar to also raise their hand and ask questions. Jen? Okay, I'm gonna share my screen. Let's do that and bring it up. Can you see the presentation, Mickey? I can, yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay, before I start, I just wanna let you know, because, oops, because of the length of the presentation, I actually am not, covering all of the 10 promises, I'm covering um, six of them. So if you see, I skip through some, ask questions at the end, please. J.R.R. Tolkien's devout Catholicism and his knowledge of the Bible through personal study and professional translation and commentary on medieval works is well known. This Catholic and biblical leaf mold finds its way into the gifts and rewards which were given to the fellowship in completion of their quest in the Lord of the Rings. These gifts or rewards seem to relate to pr the promises to the overcomer in the Bible, specifically in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Each of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia is addressed to him who overcomes and is followed by a promise. It can be demonstrated that each of these promises directly correspond in theme and value to a gift or reward in the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a devout Catholic who daily attended Mass and was intimately familiar with the Bible. This is demonstrated through the published volume of his letters where he discusses the relevant aspects of the Bible and Christianity, as well as their connection to his fiction. Tolkien's personal history with religion, his informal education in theology, and his academic writing shows analysis of the correlation between these scriptural references and his use of the themes present in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien admitted that the book is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision, for the religious element is, is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. As such, Tolkien is able to apply the theological insights of Revelation to the journey of the fellowship through these gifts. Randall Helms was the first scholar to study the influence of the Bible on Tolkien's writings. 
Yannick Imbert offers insight into Tolkien's work as a translator of the Book of Jonah and the Jerusalem Bible, which sheds lights on Tolkien's intimacy with scripture at large. Tolkien was indeed a reader of the Bible, referring several times to key biblical paracopes, and this reading was distilled in his imagination, infusing biblical imagery and topology in the most extraordinary and natural manner. Similarly, Clive Shergold re reviews the influence of the Bible in Tolkien's professional and personal life, from the literature he studied and taught to his personal Catholic devotion. Among these literary texts were the Old English Exodus and the Middle English Ancrine Wies and the Pearl. Christine Larson adds that Tolkien was apparently deeply and profoundly affected by his belief in Christian eschatology, and it kept creeping into his work, either consciously or unconsciously, in ways that appeared to both delight and confound him. In the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, there are several combined and even overlapping promises to the overcomer. When they are separated, there are a total of 10 promises with cor which correlate to the gifts or rewards in the Lord of the Rings and are examined here. Through their study, Tolkien's use of these promises as both gifts to complete the quest or as rewards for its success demonstrates a deep understanding of the biblical text from which they were refashioned to meet the needs of his story. And I contend that these symbols are instrumental to the success of the quest to destroy the ring and win the war of the ring. It is necessary in this study to determine the identity of the overcomer as the recipient of the promises in Revelation 2 and 3. The clearest biblical definition of the overcomer can be found in 1 John 5, 4 to 5, when John asks and answers the question about the identity of the, of the overcomer. Who could it be but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Who then are the overcomers in the Lord of the Rings? It is best to reverse engineer the identity of the overcomer by examining who receives the revelation comparable promises in the form of gifts or rewards. The gifts and rewards were given to all the members of the fellowship, given to all the members of the fellowship correlate to those in Revelation 2 and 3, except for Boromir, a non-overcomer counterpoint who fell at the end of book two. The white tree of Gondor has a genealogy like Christ, which can be traced back to Telperion in Valinor. Its lineage is recounted several times throughout the Cimmerillion and the Lord of the Rings. The white tree of Gondor evokes the imagery of the tree of life is located in the Garden of Eden and again in the New Jerusalem. Its similarity to the tree of life in the New Jerusalem provides a tie back to Valinor, the Valar, and ultimately to Eru. In fact, Tolkien calls the trees the chief backward links. One might say that a tree of life in the form of the sapling of the white tree was a reward given to Aragorn as a sign of the renewal of the kingdom and the success of his kingship. The white tree as a descendant of Telperion represents the health and prosperity of the kings from Numenor and as such has become an important symbol of Gondor. In Revelation 2.11, the overcomer is promised to be unharmed by the second death. Jesus describes himself as the one who was dead and came to life and has defeated the power of death. Death, which has haunted mankind since the fall, has itself been conquered. Paul calls death the last enemy, which will be subdued by Christ, but death is not to be feared by those who are Christ's. By making death a gift of Iluvatar, Tolkien in his legendarium reframes biblical ideas about death by removing it as a penalty for all inhabitants of Arda. Death for men in Arda is not a punishment, nor is it followed by judgment. Positive understandings of a Christian's death before Tolkien can be found in the writings of the early church fathers. In the Lord of the Rings, there are several instances where members of the fellowship encounter death in a supernatural way. 
including Gandalf, who in human form returns from the dead with greater power and wisdom, and was able to release Theoden from Thralden, thereby marshalling the Rohan for the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Pelennor Fields, and, in, and confronting Saruman, who was imprisoned in Orthanc, which brought the Palantir into Aragorn's possession. Also, Aragorn's journey to, through the paths of the dead allowed him to use the Oathbreakers to capture the fleet of the Corsairs at Umbar, and whose coming to the Battle of Pelennor Fields ensured Gondor's victory. And finally, the ring bearers, Bilbo, Frodo, and Sam, and also Gimli, who, who were allowed to sword in for a time in Tolerasea. Tolkien wrote about the connection between Limus bread and the Eucharist in the letters. The manna that the Israelites ate during their exile in the desert as they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land sustained them for 40 years and was a precursor to the Eucharist or the bread used in communion. Tolkien's limbus or whey bread, or as Tolkien once described it, unleavened bread, is a gift food, gifted food or sustenance to feed people who traveled vast distances. However, its distribution to other races is very rare. It takes a more religious implications, according to Tolkien, as Frodo and Sam head toward Mount Doom. Members of the Fellowship were given limbus by Galadriel when they left Lothlorien, which sustained them after the breaking of the Fellowship. The bread is imbued with special qualities that render it fulfilling physically and seemingly spiritually. It was eaten by the three hunters, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, as they ran across the plains of Rohan in pursuit of the kidnapped hobbits. Merry and Pippin, when they escaped from the orcs, were able to eat a few pieces of limbus and were restored. Then when they entered Fangorn Forest, they met Treebeard, a pivotal restoration and arrival which led to the last march of the Ents, the destruction of Isengard, and the Hurons going to Helm's Deep. Finally, Sam carefully husbanded the remainder of his limbus spread on their march to Mount Doom and ensured that he and Frodo were able to complete the journey and destroy the ring. In Revelation 2.17, the overcomer is promised a new name. The promise of a new name is a common occurrence in the Bible where people are being transformed by their interactions with God. In that tradition, the overcomer of Revelation 2 and 3 receives a new name which anticipates his new status. Tolkien's naming practices are reflective of biblical naming conventions. The name of Elessar, Elfstone, which Aragorn received from Galadriel when she gave him the green stone brooch, in particular, provides a resonance to the promise to the overcomer in Revelation 2.17. Aragorn's new name, which shows his new role and change of status from ranger to king. Likewise, the members of the fellowship, as they encounter new people and lands and take on new responsibilities, and as they move closer to final victory, mirror the biblical tradition of naming and renaming. Among these are Gandalf, the Hobbits, and Aragorn. In Revelation 2.26, the promise to the overcomer that he will be given power over the nations. The verse which follows describes the, the measure of the authority to be granted. He shall rule them with a rod of iron and as a vessel of a potter, they shall be broken. This passage quotes Psalm 2.9, which Simon Kistemarker explains, provides a picture of a royal scepter of Christ, symbolizing his authority to rule, to exercise discipline, and to mete out judgment. With Christ, the believer who overcomes will have the authority to rule, to discipline, and to judge. The scepter and the shepherd's crook are, crook are royal symbols. While the crook is an analogous with care and protection, the scepter is, in a sense, its opposite or complement and is equated with justice and punishment. During the early days of Aragorn's reign, 
His actions allude to a biblical exercise of power as he pronounces judgments, receives embassies, pardons people, and releases slaves, thus meeting out mercy and justice. This prophecy has two linked parts. Christ will give the overcomer authority over the nations, as mentioned in the previous slide, and will give him the morning star. The term is used again in Revelation 22:16 when Jesus declares, I am the root and stock of David, the bright and morning star. The Apostle Peter, when speaking of Jesus' baptism, transfiguration, and his coming kingdom, looks forward until the day dawn and the day star, or translated in the King James, the morning star, arise in your hearts. The morning star is seen in the file of Galadriel, a light of Arendel's star, which provides light and darkness, hope in the midst of despair and protection. Frodo and Sam used the file several times after leaving La Florian to combat both darkness and evil powers in order to continue their quest. Frodo uses it as protection against the pull of the ring and the power of the Wraith Lord who leaves Menace Morgul. The light is also provides a powerful defense against the darkness in Shelob's tunnels. Sam uses the file again to subdue the two watchers at the gate of the Tower of Kirith Ungol, showing how it had power greater than dark objects. Without the file, it is doubtful they would have left Shelob's slayer alive, or that Sam would have been able to enter the gates of the Tower of Kirith Ungol to rescue Frodo, thereby threatening the success of the quest. J.R.R. Tolkien's Catholic devotion and personal and professional study make a profound biblical knowledge entirely likely. Finding the biblical in Imagery of the promises to the overcomer in Revelation 2 and 3 imbued throughout the Lord of the Rings is not surprising. Since the members of the fellowship are the ones who receive these specific gifts and rewards, they were determined to be the overcomers addressed in the biblical text. In addition to the religious symbolism, there is a cursory exploration of the stewardship aspects of the gifts and rewards. Without prudent use of these gifts or rewards, the quest would surely have failed. Through the framework of Tolkien's history with academic biblical translation work, his dedication to the Catholic faith, and the context evident in Revelation 2 and 3, this thesis demonstrates that Tolkien used the symbolism of these 10 gifts or rewards to embed biblical imagery into the structure of Lord of the Rings, and that the, present of the, and the, the presence of these 10 gifts or rewards were vital to, to the success of the War of the Ring. Thank you. That was great, Jen. Thank you so much. Um, and I know, um, you know, having walked through the thesis with you, I know how challenging it is to summarize uh, what is an, a, really an outstanding accumulation of evidence to, to make the case uh, that there's this connection between um, the gifts to the overcomer in the book of Revelation and the gifts that the fellowship receives to, uh, to successfully complete their quest. So distilling that down to 10 minutes uh, it is an even greater challenge uh, than the work itself. Um, so congratulations for that. Um, so let me start off with a couple of broad questions. And uh, and in a bit, we can maybe get into some of the weeds of the the gifts themselves, particular gifts, and uh, some of the things you you learned there um, as you conducted this research. Yeah, that's that's great to have that that particular slide right there. Um, so my first broad question is, um, you know, a concern I know I have in my own uh, now reading of Tolkien. So, you know, the first time we, at least I read Tolkien, maybe this is the case for you too. It's just this great adventure story, right? It's just this amazing adventure story. And then somewhere along the line, you find out, oh, wait, Tolkien was a Catholic. And oh, by the way, Tolkien 
you know, translated parts of the Bible. And, and all of a sudden, whatever read it is for you, the third or fourth read, you start to see things uh, uh, that you hadn't noticed when it was just this great adventure story. So um, the concern is uh, that, you know, to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And yeah. so how um, can you talk a little bit about that moment for you when you started to see evidence in the text of a connection that, you know, you you got this background in your head of the book of Revelation. And now all of a sudden the text is starting to light up for you uh, in, in this case with these gifts. So can you just talk about that experience and how it led you to this research? Well, when I first read The Hobbit, I didn't know because I was 10. But when I went to college, this text was the second semester of a Christian classics class for the English department, which I didn't take because I was a history major. But um, I, it was famous because all of my friends were English majors and they talked about the Lewis and Tolkien part of this, of this class. And so I knew going in when I read it that it was part of this Christian classics. And I didn't read Lord of the Rings until I was like 24 years old. It was fairly late. Um, but what I really found interesting was um, was knowing the background, but it wasn't until I much later, I had a friend who took that Christian classic class and said, hey, do you know this is in here? And I went, no. And then I went back and read it and went, oh, <laughs> so I've spent years trying not to research this because I knew about this, this connection until I started Signum, but I went through seminary and, and started doing the pre-work for it. Um, I wrote papers on Revelation two and three when I was at seminary. Okay. So, so, so to be clear, you um, you knew that these gifts were in there before your first read. So you you. Uh, no. Uh, okay. Probably several reads through. Okay. So you I started could. to notice, given yeah. given the connections you had made in that well, class, and, or... and there was just other things. Um, if you've ever read the. Part where they're going through um, Mordor, it sounds like it sounds like Christ carrying the cross or yes. having someone else carry the cross. I thirst and all of that. Yes. But, I mean, there it, it it sounds like it. Right. So you can see yeah. that's kind of his his source material. It's just how he uses it. Right. That's that's it. Yeah. And, and the challenge is for those of us who you know are interested in this part of uh, Tolkien studies is to. Yeah, you know this term, sure, to not, I think we've talked about this, to not do eisegesis, right? But to do mm -hmm. exegesis, not to impose yeah, on not the Not to read in. Yeah, not to read into it. And again, I think what's what's wonderful about the thesis is the, the accumulation of evidence um, that these connections seem. Uh, well, and, and the pillar one was a difficult one, but the throne one was the one I'm actually most proud of because I was trying to figure out, you know, I was looking at the throne in, in Meta, uh, the throne in Metasild and the throne in, um, in Gondor. And then I did another read through and, and hit Cormallan Fields and went, oh, there's the throne. Mm. It wasn't the throne I was looking for, but he's right. sitting, they're sitting there beside him on chairs in that right. pavilion. Right. <laughs> it's just like, oh, how, how can you not see that? The first yeah. Yeah. Dozen times I read it. Yeah. Well, because Tolkien was good at hiding it. I mean, yes. it's part, part of it is we know he made an effort, right? Consciously so at first. Well, uh, unconsciously. And then the is trying to back out the obvious. And in a book I was reading now, did a quote on Tolkien in it, and it talks about it's not what he used, it's how he uses it. And yeah. I think that's what's so interesting about this is, you know, it's it's interesting that he used all 10 things, but how he used it makes yeah. it much more interesting. Right. Yeah, no, that's good.
Um, a second sort of broad question, and this is more, more leaning a bit into the sort of theological side of things uh, rather than the Tolkien side of things. Um, for those of us who are not super familiar, and I wasn't uh, beforehand, um, in the book of Revelation, can you set uh, just briefly set the gifts themselves in the context of the, the greater you know, uh, apocalyptic work that we know as the book of Revelation? Okay, so Revelation chapter one is the vision of Christ. And then it goes into kind of this weird thing where there's seven letters. And then what follows, six, you know, chapter four onward is more the visions he had on earth and in heaven. But these seven letters, there's a lot of biblical uh, speculation on what it means with these seven churches. But um, when I did my research, when I was taking my revelation class, what I learned is that these seven letters point to Christ, point to heaven. And um, they point to eternal life. Every one of them means eternal life, okay. which and is an gift, interesting thing. And the gifts show up in one of the letters, right? They're, they're not spread across. They're spread on. Each letter has a gift. Each letter okay. has a promise. I see. Okay. Got it. Um, and the whole thing is eschatological. You reference in the thesis yeah. that the Tolkien, uh, the, one scholar, I forget the, their name, uh, has has you're fairly confident that Tolkien was sort of into the eschatology mm -hmm. uh, of this book and his faith. Okay, um, so that's helpful. That, I think that's just helpful for a broader context. Um, maybe one more sort of uh, context question and then we can get into some particulars. Uh, so one of the things you tackle in the thesis that I think time just did not allow here um, in the presentation is gift theory, right? I mean, so uh, we both read Alison Milbank. We know about gifts and Theories, and we know that Tolkien, uh, in some ways, was working with Anglo-Saxon uh, gift giving, um, in you know, in some uh, of those texts. So, can you talk a little bit more about gift theory and its relationship to uh, to your thesis and the, the gifts to the overcomer and, and to the fellowship? Well, and gift theory is an interesting thing because when I first read it, especially with Milbank, but not her, it's um, I didn't like it, and so I started digging more. Um, gift theory is, um, it, let me pull it from my thesis. She wrote this very interesting essay about gift-giving fairies seen through the economics of fairy. Um, and gift theory explained is a reciprocity ex is expected in gift-giving along with an element of sacrifice, which is the typical motif when encountering fairy. And she used um, Marcel Moss's and, theory of gift giving, which had three parts, giving, receiving, and reciprocating, so that an obligation to give back is conferred on the receiver. And and Mickey and I, you both, we talked about finding a Christian theology of it. And then Eric Severinsen in his article talked about a blessed economy, but he didn't, he wanted one, but he couldn't figure out where, where it was. And then I found um, the work by Thies Pork, and he talks about how Tolkien found fault with some aspects of the role of gifts in Anglo-Saxon heroic literature, and that his objections influence the way gift giving is described in Lord of the Rings. So he says, just as Tolkien sought to reshape dramatic hero heroism into forms of heroism that retained the qualities he liked, but omitted those aspects he deemed problematic, he too did present a completely alternative system of non-reciprocal private gifts that cement relationships without demanding a quid pro quo. And his interesting example of why he didn't like this, or Tolkien didn't, was in Beowulf at the very end, 
with everyone who, you know, was his followers, only one person followed him into that tunnel with the dragon. Um, and then there's a great quote that Tolkien actually wrote. Um, it's a, a letter he wrote to his aunt. And, oh, let's see if I can find it. Oh, lovely. Oh, here it is. One cannot attach conditions to a gift. And that completely knocks over all of the gift theory. Yeah. That runs through. Because if you cannot attach a, uh, conditions to a gift, that social gift theory does not does not hold yeah which fits in with the theology right because okay. gift grace is is pure pure purely gratuitous yeah um you know i suppose you could make an some kind of argument that there even god's gifts there's an expectation that you will use the gifts you've been given for some you know good greater good some the advancement of you know the, the reign of god however you want to you know characterize things like that um but even God doesn't, you know, wait for you to sign the contract to, to give you the gift, right? And I think that's that's the pushback you're talking about that Tolkien had with uh, with gift giving. Um, it's what intrigues me about, and I know it's not part of yours, but what intrigues me about uh, Gladriel's gift uh, to Gimlet, right? Because it's there's no use for three strands of hair other than to just it's that's that's the most gracious of all the gifts uh, because. And it's an audacious ask. It's audacious, yeah. And it's and it's purely gratuitous. So yeah. anyway, that's that's beyond the scope of what you're doing here. Uh, but but it fits in with that that notion of grace being utterly uh, uh, free. Um, okay, let's get into some of the some of the particulars then. Um, one of the one of the things uh, I think you know you hammered on a lot, and we went roundabout in conversation about was was death, right? No death. And we know, I think somewhere Tolkien says in one of his letters, what's it about? Well, it's about death, of course, you know. Uh, um, so this idea of a second death, right? No second death. And that that's yes. the gift. Um, and then some of what comes in for that is, you know, Gandalf, obviously, and Aragorn's passage through mm -hmm. the um, passage through the past of the death. But then this sort of um, sensitive area, this complication of it, uh, this tricky part, of uh these mortal people going to Valen going to um to the undying lands right to Valinor. yeah and so talk a little bit about that the challenge of that and how that fits in as a no second death uh analog in your in your thesis well and and i will back up in the thesis the the theological discussion of what exactly second death is is really deep mm. <laughs> you as you remember i had to really rewrite Right, yeah. right, because it wasn't as simple as as um, just simply death. Although in Lord of the Rings, I just stripped out a lot of that because other than the idea of judgment, I I I ignored it or just acknowledged it and moved on. But um, it would have been so much easier if they could have just gone to Valinor. I mean, it would have fit my whole whole um, yeah, idea yeah. better. Um, so I had to back it out to the Undying Lands because Tolerasea is part of that. Um, Tolerasea, Valinor, and Eldamar, which is also called Evenhome, are part of that idea of the Undying Lands. But um, Tolkien and Garth, do they both call Valinor paradise. And when you go to the OED, OED defines um, paradise as Eden and heaven, which, you know, we've got all that New Jerusalem and Eden mm -hmm. already there with the tree. Um, he... Tolkien calls Valinor a place of healing and rest, but um, it gets really complicated when you want mortals to go there who uh, 
that's why they they are on the edge in um, the Undying Lands, Tolerasea. Um, mm. But an interesting thing, I, you know, because Tolkien was Catholic, I tried to get into Carl Rayner, and that was deep waters that I just tiptoed in. He was a 20th century Catholic theologian, and he speculates that Adam would have died in Eden as a type of consummation. So having Frodo go to Tolerasea and actually die actually kind of works with Rayner's idea of death, which he was he was writing about in the 20th century. So the other thing I can never figure out is why Gimli got to go, because he wasn't a ring bearer. Um, and um, Tolkien never adequately, from what I can find, s satisfies this question. Other than he was a friend of Legolas and he had the gold, you know, the gold strands of Galadriel. But that's the only question that isn't as satisfying of an answer. Some kind of, do I recall somewhere, some, one of the appendixes, is it through Galadriel's um, petition, maybe? I, yeah, I don't remember. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't certainly line up with, the, you know, the ring bearers get to go thing. No, um, there is a part and a footnote. Um, Galadriel's lament in Lorien, she mm. concludes her lament with a wish or prayer that Frodo may as a special yeah, grace yeah. be granted a purgatorial, but not penal surgeon in Arisaea. And purgatorial, penal would be judgment. Yeah. So, but it never really, everyone speculates about why Gimli got to go, but I guess it's because it's even. Yeah. What's what's most helpful to me, um, you know, because this is a, a tricky one, um, is that Frodo goes and presumably Sam and uh, maybe Gimli to, to Valinor and then dies there. So yeah, they're they not escaping death. Um, they die in Tolerasea. But that actually makes right. sense when you when you look at the speculations by Carl Rayner. Yes, yeah, that that's that, that kind of that actually makes more sense if, with Rayner's idea that if because I walked around for several weeks going, why is there a tree of life in Eden if there's no death? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I asked every theologian I work with or biblical scholar, why? What is going on here? Right. And they basically came down. The consensus was he had the potentiality for death. Mm -hmm. which is why we needed the tree of life which right. makes carl rayner's work right. seem more more um more i wouldn't say acceptable but makes more sense it clarifies it clarifies yeah. that yeah it clarifies uh, the idea. i think one, one of the challenges for me here as we, as we went uh, you know in discussion about this was that i had always seen uh frodo's um uh being venomized by shelob as his first death. So, you know, Gandalf, you know, obviously dies and is come back. Aragorn's death and resurrection is through the past of the dead and for, uh, for Frodo. So if, if we take those as three parts of the, you know, the Christ archetype, um, that the resurrection for Frodo was, hey, his, the only person around at the time thought he was dead um, and he was as good as dead. And, and then it turned out, you know, there was a kind of resurrection. But he and wasn't so, it's yeah, and so it helps to have that idea that he goes uh, to the undying lands, not to not die, but to uh, but to be healed. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, that that's great. Um, let's talk about another sort of one of the particulars, and this one maybe is uh, is easy enough uh, to explain, you know, based on the research. So we see here Whitestone, right, uh, as one of the gifts. 
And the only stone, at least that I'm aware of, if we're not going to count Galadriel's ring, um, because that's not in the same category of gifts to the overcomers, um, uh, is the one the gift that's given to Aragorn of the green stone of the elf stone. So can you talk a little bit about um, yeah. why we get a color change there? Okay, so most of my best work is actually in the footnotes of the thesis. <laughs> no worry about that. Um, why it's in the footnotes because it, it doesn't fit, but um, it is. He, Tolkien gives the stone; it's green. But if you get into the treason of Isengard in the history of Middle Earth, um, Christopher Tolkien discusses various versions of errantry, which Bilbo writes about and performs in Rivendell. The emerald takes on several forms, a spear, a sword, a helm, before becoming just an emerald on his breast. This stone, which was white and originally intended for Gimli, at the time has curious properties, for it is said that those who looked through the stone saw things that were withered or burned or healed again, or as they were in the grace of their youth. This power is not evident in the stone given to Aragorn in the final form. So originally it was a white stone and Tolkien, made it a green stone and then in um Aaron, in the when he's when bilbo's doing errantry you remember that little conversation where you know, uh say frodo asked you know what do you remember what part i did and it's the green stone he changed the stone to an emerald deliberately and that kind of ties to the green stone he's given by Galadriel. I see. So in the original errantry that that Bilbo was kind of working with, he he in the original it was a white stone, and it's uh, him that made it a green stone in order to line it up with Aragorn. Yeah, I think that. that's it. And also in Tolkien, in his his uh, versions, had started out with it being a white stone yes. with the usual properties, and the gift the stone was given to Gimli. Yeah. Aragorn. So there's a lot of seismic shifting on this one this one element. Who gives the gift to give it? Is it Galadriel who gives him the gift? Yeah, Galadriel. Oh, well, I don't know the Gimli. I don't know if it's actually explained in the history of Middle Earth. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but the gift was initially intended for Gimli. I, I see. I, I see. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, of course, changing it to green it helps with the cover-up, right? I mean, yeah. as Tolkien continues to try to say, look over here, not over here. Um, you know, a simple shift like that can can help. Um, so that's great. Uh, you know, the uh, the morning star, right? I, I have my little uh, wet workshop file of Galadriel over there. I, I won't go get it. So. Um, I, and I, I uh, wrote about this too in my own thesis. The file of Galadriel is super important, right? It plays a critical yes. role at, at critical points in the uh, in the quest to destroy the ring. Um, and like you, I you know I found a greater uh, connection to Christ to Jesus uh, than to references to the Morning Star as John the Baptist, or even in some of uh, cases Mary. Um, you know, both as heralds as as uh, um, predecessors to the dawn, you know, the sun coming up uh, as the morning star. So talk about that. What evidence did you find for that uh, connection between um, the, the morning star, Jesus, uh, the file of Galadriel, the light of Arundel? Put those things together for us. Okay, let's, I'm going back to the thesis. Let's see. Um, well, the, there's Jesus's own, own testimony in Revelation 2.16. He says, I am the bright bright morning star and that is repeated again in the gospel or in the letters um 
what I found interesting about this idea of the star is that in some of the um, medieval authors thought it was John the Baptist, which makes sense as a, if it, the morning star is Venus, then it's more of a herald of the day. Mm -hmm. But um, it does not work when you when you take it back. I think a tradition is wrong, but mm -hmm. you know tradition is sometimes wrong. Yeah. Um, it, when you take it back, what was really interesting? Anyone who goes back and reads that chapter on Shelob's lair, look at the descriptions of the star when the star is out and working and what it does. It's when it's bright, they have hope and they're protected. And when it when it isn't there, it it the light dims and Shelob is able to take more, um, more, um, more of an act against them. But it's very interesting how that the, the amount of shining, and it also fits with the apostle John because he writes a lot about light and darkness yes. in the, you know, in, in the gospel in chapter one of John, he talks about the light, the light coming to the world and the, the world not seeing it. Yeah. And, and that whole, thing that light and darkness is played throughout the use of Shelob's or the use of um of Galadriel's file yeah why does it um and I don't I don't think I know the answer to this I, I threw out an answer in my own work but why does it fail at the end so at the end right oh, when Sam yes. goes into the uh, Samoth Noir am I saying that right uh, there's probably people yeah the cracks of doom it, yeah, it, it fails. Like he takes out the 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 file, and it doesn't yeah. work. It fails. What what's going on there? Would you say you don't talk about this in the thesis? Yes, part. and it's not in my thesis. I actually left that out because yeah. I'm just know, curious what you think as someone who studied. I that. think I think it because it was it's not the original light from the Cimmerils. It's not the original light from the trees. It's a it's a copy, or it's 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 several generations from it, and when it's in the presence of pure evil, it could not stand up because other other evil, Shelob and the 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 watchers at Carathungle, they pretty yeah. much just rolled over. They're daunted, yeah. Yeah. But um, but they're copies of the evil. They're not the actual essence. And I think in that pure essence, the light could not could not stand up to it. Which is an interesting thing because you know, theologically that's an interesting and in the story, that's interesting how Tolkien did not let it always succeed. Yes. It, it gives you better understanding with the pressure that Frodo was under. Yes, yes. And and how that, you know, in some ways conspires to Frodo's, you know, we don't have to discuss mm -hmm. this failure uh, at yeah. the end uh, to, to not destroy the ring. Yeah. So maybe one more sort of uh, down in the weeds question and then one more broad question, and then I'll open it up and see what questions other people have. So the, the last down in the weeds question, um, and you helped me massively with this as we went through, because I was really stumbling with this, the whole connection between the, the pillar and the idea of citizenship and the community. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a great connection that you made there. Uh, and if you could just revisit that i think it's um you know a good thing to sort of well and initially i was looking for pillars everywhere you know never do a keyword search when you're trying to find something <laughs> that's more symbolic but it actually helps when you start doing uh word searches of the verses and the original konea greek and so when i was looking at the word pillar 
it actually, um, I was looking at the analytic, analytical dictionary lexicon of the Greek New Testament and looking up that word. And the pillar actually means stylos, which goes back to pillar. And as they explain it, it's a leader, authoritative leader of a community, a very important person. Mm. And when I read that, it was like, oh, a pillar of the community. That's actually a phrase we use, still use now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when, that was a breakthrough for me was when you said, oh, like a pillar of the community. I was like, oh, duh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, and then the other thing is there's a verse of Philippians 3.20. It talks about um, about your um, let your conversation. And if you look up the word conversation in the Greek, it's actually politema. I'm going to say it really broad. It it goes back to citizenship and administration or civil affairs of a, of a commonwealth. So it gets that political idea to it, which is where I got the words um, citizenship. Yes. Um, and part of that is the difference in translations. I was using the Douay Reims. I was using the New King James and several other ones. And I was looking, how do they translate this word? And it came up conversation and, and, yes. and, community and, and citizenship various depending on which Greek scholars were using it. Yes. So so I know, but that now connect that dot into the Lord of the Rings. So where is the gift of citizenship? I didn't see anybody walking around with a you know a, a ionic oh, column. Yeah. Uh, but especially when you when you're dealing with kingdoms, you don't have citizenships. You've right. got subjects, but we'll we'll gloss over that. Yeah. What I realized is that those in the fellowship were granted access to areas they would not have been granted access right. to if they had like Frodo, uh, Faramir lets Frodo and Sam pretty much go anywhere they need to on Gondor rather than locking them up and dragging them to Gondor. Um, you see this with, um, in the in the instance where, where Faramir, not Faramir, um, oh, um, Rohan. In, in Gondor? Yeah, in, no, in Rohan, uh, Aragorn, is is with the with his first in, interaction with Rohan, and he's supposed to oh, to Theoden to into, yeah, uh, not Theoden uh, the nephew. Oh, Eomer. Eomer. When Eomer yeah. challenges him, and then Eomer gets thrown thrown in um, lockup because he l allows the um, the three right. hunters to continue on. You see that not everyone has free access; they can't go where yes. they want. Um, so when I started looking at this, I realized that Mary and Pippin both become citizens through their service yes. yeah. of the of the lands that they serve for because they become knights of those realms. Yeah. And and Frodo pretty much um, Aragorn basically backs up Faramir's um, gift and says, you know, for the rest of your life, you can travel wherever you yeah. want. Yeah. No, that that's a, a really uh, I think. You know, you can see some of the connections are obvious, the white tree, uh, um, Lembas, you know, okay. a lot has been written about Lembas. Uh, but the the pillar, you did a, such a great job of connecting the dots there, going back to the Greek, um, you know, looking into the the way that shows up in the fellowship in the form of citizenship access, if I could call it that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just want to commend that, um, that, cha that bit of a challenge you had there in in completing the pictures, I think that's it, the the uh, the accumulated evidence is what I keep coming back to. It's one thing to make the case that this or that thing uh, mm -hmm. is connected to this or that uh, gift to the overcomer, but it's really the assembly of the ten 
that I think, you know, make the case really strong. And, you know, if you were missing, for example, oh, it's not a green, so white stone, not a green stone. And I don't know what to do with the pillar thing. The whole, the, there's a way in which the whole argument falls apart. So you did a good job of, of keeping the argument together in one place. Thank you. The one thing I'm, uh, another one thing that was an aha moment was Limbus. And I'm going to, when I called it Unleavened Bread, trying to find the book I was, it wasn't in the history of Middle Earth because um, it was actually in, um, sorry, now I'm not, not going to be able to find it. It was in one of those extra books that have been published in the last couple of years and on the making of Limbus. Okay. Um, do you remember which one that was? I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's the one it, thing everybody goes to is Limbus. In, on the making of Limbus, which is one of the chapters of oh, the nature of Middle Earth. Uh, yeah. Middle Earth, he must have gone back to the archives because he adds stuff that's not in the history of Middle Earth. And I looked them both up and had them side by side. Mm. There was extra, extra text oh. and where he says that Tolkien called it unleavened bread. And this is Carl Hostetter's recent yeah, book. I think it's yeah. I'll have to look at that because even when you just said that, I don't recall because I did a bit on, on, on Lembas too. I don't recall it ever being referred to as unleavened bread. Whey bread, yes. I mean, you make yes, tons of connections. bread. Yeah. But, but in uh, the, the making of Middle Earth and on under the making or the nature of Middle Earth under the making of Limbus, it there's a phrase that says unleavened bread. Yeah. And I went, whoa, okay. You know, you but enough, I could I could do it with the Eucharist, but call it unleavened bread and then that's awesome. Yeah. I love Carl Hostetler's work and you know, I got to realize that the nature of Middle Earth is not a book you read from start to finish because I hit the uh, chronology stuff, the the ages, and I was like, okay, I gotta, this isn't, I gotta have to dance around this book, not uh, go straight through. Um, okay, the last question I have is, as Cohen zooming back out again, um, and it's a question. You know, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves who want to make these cases about the influence of Tolkien's faith and his religion on his work. What do you think is the strongest counter argument? Like why, um, why, what's the strongest argument you've come up against if somebody says, no, you know, you're just reading it into it. You, you, you just wish Tolkien the Catholic was showing up everywhere. And really, really, this is the lens you need to look at it. Like what's the strongest argument you've, you've heard? Against it? Yeah. Um, I tried to stay away from a lot of the uh, the against it. I read a few articles about it. Um, mostly, it just demonstrated that how hurt people were of oh. religion. Oh, interesting. So yeah. the effect on the reader. Yeah, the reader's um, hatred of organized religion shows yeah. up in their writing, and and it's. I don't know how you can divorce. Tolkien, um, one of my one of my quotes in the thesis talks about he was so into his Catholicism. I mean, he went to mass every day. He read yeah, his yeah. Bible. You can see it in his work mm. that he did not have a division between his his life and his faith. Yeah. It's not like he's like most American Christians who are Christians only on Sunday and every day of the week right. they're they're everything else. No, he actually that, lived it in every part of his life. Yeah, it was and it shows up everywhere. And you read the the letters, and there's a lot of Christianity and talk about religion yeah. in them. Yeah, the letter I was just with my own students talking about the letter to Michael the other day, mm -hmm. um, which is beautiful, a beautiful uh, expression of faith. And you know, obviously Michael's having some issue, and Tolkien's reflecting on his faith, importance of faith in his life, and 
if, if, if you hadn't, people haven't read that letter, it's just uh, a powerful um, expression. Um, for me, I guess it's, it's, you know, the argument that, well, you know, it's, it's equal parts, everything it's equal parts, Beowulf, Catholicism, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Norway, Finnish, like he just took a, a shot, a, you know, a measuring glass and he put an ounce of everything and he's put it in a blender and he started up. Um, and I, I, I agree with you that there, that it's not equal parts. I think for me anyway, uh, the, the, the Catholicism is central. It's, it's, um, it's a larger part than the rest. No doubt he mixed things together. And so yeah. uh, but what's interesting about this, these are 10 things, 10 whole things. Yeah. Each of them, um, I determined if that thing hadn't been there, you know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been yeah. 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 And some of them were hugely important. Right, right. Okay, well, that's that's great. I mean, that's the questions I have. And, uh, you know, some of them are holdovers for the process itself. And, some of them I know were new and hopefully we're not too big a surprise, but um, if there's anyone in the in the participants list here who'd like to uh, make a comment or raise a question uh, for Jen, um, maybe raise your hand. I don't know in a webinar, do, do we get to see people's uh, faces or if it's just all just names like this. So um, if you raise your hand, then I have a little button that says allow to talk. Another possibility would be to um, to put a question in the uh, the question and answer box on your screen. No takers, Jen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's good. They're still reeling from it. <laughs> I'll give another minute. Last call for questions. Okay, well, we'll just leave it at spectators then. And uh, and hopefully with me, at least you will all uh, silently offer your congratulations to Jen for having successfully uh, completed this process from start to finish. The paper, again, is uh, available as it will be a recording of this thesis um, as part of the this new mass, newly minted master's student. In, it's your language, art, language, arts, and literature. Is that right? Is that the masters uh, of language and literature? Language and literature, and with a with a concentration in a Tolkien. Is that a, specific, a specification of yours as well? So, congratulations, Jen. It's been wonderful working with you. I'm sure we'll uh, continue our conversation. Oh, oh, so we get, we're getting some congratulations. Oh, uh, yay! Um, uh, it's been great working with you, and I'm. Um, it's good to have another sort of scholar in the in the uh, on this side of the uh, the case. Um, I look forward to uh, reading more of what you write. I know uh, maybe we can end with you've you've just entered a PhD program, right? Is that right? Uh, doctor in ministry. Doctor in ministry program. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, uh, equally as arduous as a PhD. Um, so congratulations on being accepted into that program as well. All right, everyone, thank you so much for uh, being a part and, and viewing here. There's a um, with this show chat previews. Make sure I'm not missing anything here. No, it's just some congratulations. All right, Jen, we'll, we'll follow up with whatever logistics need to be done on the, on the Signum end uh, in the days ahead. Thank you very much. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. All right, bye everybody.